Lord Jesus, we've sung it in principle, but we ask that even tonight, here, right now, among us, you would meet us in your word. Amen. Do please find page uh, 1197, and we come now to the end of uh, a series, been going on for quite some time now, in 2 Timothy. Now we're faced with a whole chapter, and logic would suggest that the sensible thing to do is to start at verse 1, uh, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, all of the things that are in the early verses of chapter 4 are important Uh, because of the story of how St. Paul, who is writing to his uh, uh, younger friend, Timothy, and fellow worker, uh, how he got there. And that story comes really from verse 6 onwards. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to cover the personal story first uh, and then go back to its implications. Uh, It's sensible, obviously, for Paul to do it the way he's done it because the personal story comes at the end of his whole letter. But just in case we're not alert to it, uh, let's cover the story and then go back. Paul knows that he's going to die. He is in uh, Ephesus, sorry, he's in Rome, writing to Timothy, who is in Ephesus, uh, in what we would now call Turkey. Uh, Paul has been arrested Not the first time of his arrest, he's in jail and he's in chains. And he's probably had, based on what he says, uh, a bit like you'd get in in some criminal cases these days, you'd get a magistrate's hearing and then you'd get crown court. Uh, They would have had a first um, uh, process uh, and then a secondary process. And it sounds like the first process has happened and he knows, because of what he's been told that the second process is going to be uh, his sentencing to death. But the second process hasn't happened yet, so he doesn't know how long away that is. Right now, it seems to him that he could die alone. But he is running through the, the people that have been important in the story so far, partly to fill uh, Timothy in, but also to let him know who's worth trusting. Uh, So, um, do your best, verse 9, to come to me quickly. Uh, From something he says later on about try and get here before winter, it's not just, um, I don't want you to, you know, get a bit cold on your journey. What he's concerned about is that for uh, a journey from... Uh, Ephesus to Rome. It was a big journey. You had a major road journey um, uh, through what we would now call uh, Greece. Then you'd have uh, a sea crossing to Brindisi, and then another road journey up to Rome. But the sea crossing wouldn't be, wouldn't be available to you between November and March. So he wants, uh, Luke, uh, so he wants Timothy to get to him uh, quickly before the the season sets in when it won't be possible uh, for Timothy to travel. So do your best to come to me quickly, verse 9. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. We're going to find out later on that the whole point of the alternative to living the life of Demas is not to love this world, but to love the world that is coming. 
So Demas has gone. Uh, Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. We know they were fellow workers, uh, so they've taken the message to um, uh, other bits of uh, what would now be Turkey and Greece, or Yugoslavia. The only one left with me is Luke. Get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. Paul had had a falling out with his friend Barnabas over what use um, the uh, younger Mark was to them on their, in their work. They'd had a falling out, and uh, Mark had gone off with Barnabas. But later on, uh, he and Paul had patched it up, and uh, uh, Mark had become clearly quite useful now to Paul. And it looks like Mark was replacing, or going to replace, this other friend, Tychicus. So what uh, uh, Paul is saying is, I did have Tychicus with me, but I've now sent him, probably with this letter, by the time you get this, you'll, it'll be true that I have sent him to Ephesus to be where you are. Um, uh, so in return, I want you to send Mark to me. Now, when you come, uh, Timothy, uh, from Ephesus to Rome, I want you to bring the cloak that I left with Carpas at Troas, that was in Turkey too, and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Paul didn't know how long he'd got left, but he wanted to use the time that he had usefully. So he still wanted to work, still wanted his his, uh, writing materials and his reading materials. Now be on guard. Alexander did me a great deal of harm. Alexander is a metal worker. And in Ephesus, you couldn't really be a metal worker without actually making uh, little idols, little statues in metal of Artemis, the goddess of the Ephesians. Alexander is mentioned earlier in the same letter as someone whom Paul has excommunicated. But it looks as though at one point Alexander was hovering and might have become uh, a Christian, might have been friendly to the gospel, and Paul saying, no, uh, he isn't, so watch out for him. Be on your guard against him, because in the end, he strongly opposed what we said. Well, his money, his trade, was in making idols. So he wouldn't have necessarily been hugely fond of the Christians. Verse 16 onwards, the the Lord is with us. No one else was around, but the Lord, verse 17, stood at my side and gave me strength. So that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles, all the people who aren't Jews, might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. That doesn't necessarily mean the the arena, real lions. It's the language of the Psalms, and it means from, from a desperate situation. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack, and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. I will be safe with him, because finally... It's about him. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Then just a couple of little things. Let's uh, race through verse 19 to 22. Unusual. uh, Priscilla, a female. Aquila, male. Unusual for the female to be mentioned first. Clearly, there is a role in leadership there for uh, Priscilla in some way. These were amazing people. They used to live in Rome. And then uh, when one of the emperors kicked all the Jews out of Rome, 
they fled to Corinth. And that's where Paul first met them, probably where they were converted. They went from Corinth to Ephesus. Then we know of them back in Rome. But now, according to this, they're back in Ephesus. They've uh, uh, gone backwards and forwards, shuttled across the Mediterranean and always running house churches wherever they've been. It looks like these are really important in the life of Paul, but important leaders in the life of the early church. Erastus, don't know anything about him, stayed in Corinth. Um, Oh, sorry, and the one before. Uh, The household of Onesiphorus. You greet a household when the main person's not there anymore. Uh, Onesiphorus has died. We don't know how, uh, but he was a friend. Uh, He's mentioned in chapter 1. Then Trophimus is sick in Miletus. Uh, This is all a very fragile business. That's what I want to kind of convey. Here is Paul, whom we might think of as, I'm the great apostle, you know, striding across the Mediterranean stage. The whole thing is vulnerable to collapse at any minute. Onesephorus is dead. Um, uh, Trophimus is sick. Winter is coming. He may die before he actually gets to see Timothy. Uh, It was all feeling very fragile indeed. Then, uh, do your best to get here before winter, then these names at the end, Eubulus greets you, and so do Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers. They're just names, aren't they? Except we know that Linus became a bishop, one of the very early bishops in Rome. And it puts us in touch with that line of continuity that says, yes, the gospel did get through. It may have been fragile. But actually, it's as though... We don't know much about what happened to almost anyone in this letter. But we know, it, we know that it landed on Linus. And that Linus went on to be a major leader in the life of the church. Well, that's the, the story as Paul faces death from verse 6 onwards. And then he uh, wraps up his personal story from verse 9. So now let's uh, think about what uh, what it is that's led him uh, to all this and and where he wants Timothy to go. I was in the supermarket uh, a couple of days ago. And uh, I don't know how often um, you go to the supermarket. Um, It's hard these days to um, find a supermarket that isn't advertising something as a superfood. There's uh, uh, blueberries, I think, are a superfood. Um, pomegranates, I think, are supposed to be a superfood. Um, and if I played the game, which I'm not going to, of asking you to shout out, you would probably know of other superfoods that are just the latest thing that is the total package that's going to revolutionize your life. And it's actually the, uh, the one key food that you absolutely must depend on. And as there's already been a comment from Mike at the front, I think we can safely say that one of the superfoods is never going to be sprouts. Uh, The reason Lucy's dressed as a sprout, by the way, um, has got nothing to do with this morning's uh, presentation, and I suspect everything to do with the Cypher Christmas party uh, a little later. At least I hope you haven't just dressed up for church as you have. Okay. Youth workers. Um, What would you do to find yourself a spiritual superfood? What would you do to say, okay, just just 
strip it down, give me the basics. What am I supposed to do? If I'm supposed to eat blueberries and eat pomegranates, and all that, spiritually, what am I supposed to do? Well, this is one of those rare passages that gives us an answer. Preach the word, verse 2. And nearly everything that we have to say from these verses tonight, and actually pretty much everything that Paul has to say to Timothy in this second letter, can be stripped down to those three words. Preach the word. Firstly, notice how solemnly Paul sets it up. In the presence of God. He's in jail, remember. He's got chains attached to his legs. But he knows he's in the presence of God. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead. This is how serious this is. This is a judgment matter, Timothy. And in view of his appearing and his kingdom, Jesus will return. And that will make sense of all the ministry that you and I have been engaged in. He's going to appear. He is going to bring in fully the kingdom that we now know about a little. These are really solemn expressions in the, in the presence of God and of presence of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing, I give you this charge. Preach the word. He gives him that charge because there is that solemnity that this life is to be taken seriously because Jesus is coming back. Looking at it the other way, you could go to verse 6 and say, uh, he's actually looking at it from the point of view of his own past. I'm giving you this charge because I'm not going to be around here to preach it. My time of preaching the word is over. So you are being handed the baton. You preach the word. I am done. For me, uh, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Now there's in store for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, verse 8. That's the passing being recorded. I give you this charge, verse 2, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. How many of you have been scouts, guides, cubs, um, brownies, whatever, and had to do dib, dib, dib on be prepared? Okay, thank you. Lots of you have. It does strike me that it's a very interesting motto for a youth movement. Um, On the radio this week, I heard of um, the challenges of conveying to young people uh, the need to be prepared. So if you're teaching them, for example, about um, food, um, someone was pointing out, there is no point in saying to uh, a, a young teenage girl, if you eat too much of the wrong kind of foods, uh, you may end up with uh, cancer, you may uh, have a heart attack, you may die early. That's far too far away. But say to the same girl, if you eat too much of the wrong kind of foods, you might not fit into the prom dress next week. Now that will work. 
because teenagers are not very good at thinking that far forward, not very good, therefore, at being prepared for what may lie ahead. And it just strikes me as really interesting, therefore, that there are whole youth movements where the motto is be prepared. In itself, that's like saying, act like an adult. It means you take youngsters very, very early on and say, we're going to teach you something about life, something that as a young person isn't native territory to you. The urging that we're going to give you to be prepared, we're going to give you because life is not naturally urgent for you now. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct. Rebuke and encourage. We'll come to that in a moment. If we're to preach the word, uh, we need to know it. Uh, And if we're to be prepared in season and out of season, we need to stack up that awareness. And inevitably, therefore, if you've got that in front of you as a preacher, it does mean I just want to touch on the business of how we engage ourselves with the Bible. don't know why these things come round in cycles, but recently I've had quite a lot of people saying to me, I'm very aware that I don't really read the Bible the way that I would like to. Well, for some of you, I just want to say, be aware that there are two seven o'clocks in a day. Uh, There is an evening seven o'clock, but there is a morning seven o'clock as well. You may never have discovered it. It may be a wonderful new experience for you to encounter sometime. But I know that the people that mostly I talk to who say, my my Bible reading's not great at the moment, uh, of course there's nothing magic about the mornings. But for most of us who've got a working day, if you're going to encounter scripture at all, it's going to be at the beginning of the day or the end of the day. Not many of us are much good at the end of the day. Uh, so just as a matter of logic, you're kind of often driven to the, to the beginning of the day. Um, don't stay out so late. Uh, go to bed a bit earlier and read the Bible when you get up. This is not rocket science. But I mention it because people often say to me, as though somehow it will be rocket science, that one day they will acquire the ability, an ability we don't have right now to read the Bible. I'm saying, no, 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 just press the button on the alarm a bit earlier, uh, get up, read it. Uh, what are we to do with it? Well, we're to correct, rebuke, and encourage. Let's uh, cross-check that. This is chapter 4 and verse 2, but look at chapter 3 and verse 16. It's useful, Scripture, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Well, correcting and rebuking are the same. Encouragement, got to be slightly careful with that word in the Bible. You'll have heard other preachers say this uh, illustration, I'm sure, but it's still as good a one as any if you go to the Bayer Tapestry and the record of the Norman conquest of Britain. There's a wonderful scene where um, Bishop Odo encourages encourages his troops, and the actual um, embroidery at that point on the Bayer Tapestry shows Odo encouraging his particular troop um, by sticking a a sword or a spear uh, up their backside. Um, What he's doing is he is urging them to get on with what they should be doing. Um, uh, Those are the days, of course, when uh, bishops were military figures. But it's why the the language is encouraging. It's an urging forward. It's not a, oh, I'm going to encourage you today. It's not that kind of encouragement. It's, oh, get in there. Uh, So it's for, the Bible is for correcting rebuking, and the kind of encouragement that is an urging forward. 
So yes, it does cross-correlate onto teaching and training in righteousness in the, cha- in, in the chapter before. Uh, if you go to um, chapter 1 and verse 10 and 11, just bearing in mind we are finishing today. Uh, it's... Uh, the grace of God has been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ Jesus, who's destroyed death, brought light and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. The gospel is recorded. And it's as that story is made known, and we are reminded of it, that we find ourselves corrected, rebuked, trained, and so on. Now, if I said to you, that Holy Trinity is a chapter 3, verse 16 kind of church, you'd go, oh, yes, preach it, brother. Um, Well, you might not, but you know what I mean. You would say, oh, yes, that's a famous bit. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. You probably knew that verse. You would probably say, yes, I want to be part of a church that's a, a chapter 3, verse 16 church. It marks what we subscribe to. It marks our adherence. It says, yes, this is where we stand on Scripture. Now, if I said to you, and all of that is so that you can do chapter 4 and verse 2, how would you then feel? All Scripture is all these things in order that you can go and preach it. At which point, I think, some of us might go, oh, well, uh, yeah, well, yeah, I'm sure it's very important that some people do that. Why? Why would we say that? It's not important that some people acknowledge Scripture to be uh, uh, God-breathed and useful. for. T- we all want that. We all want chapter 3, verse 16, but we may not all want chapter 4 and verse 2. And the whole of this letter is written... It's, it's written about the role of Scripture and the, the role Scripture's to play. But for us, I would make the claim that it is written for making us from a 316 church into a 42 church. It is not enough to acknowledge Scripture, to say Scripture is marvelous, to say Scripture is authoritative, though it is all of those, if we don't then preach it. And not in the way that we say, oh, well, preaching is for preachers. That's what preachers do. They preach. Therefore, that's great. Yeah, we're happy that the word is preached as long as it's the preachers that preach it. It's not what the word means. It means to announce, to uh, proclaim, to, uh, to speak it out. Uh, patience and urging are going to be necessary with great patience Uh, Paul says, uh, and there is this sense of encouragement, this urging. Why? Because the time will come, verse 3, when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. We, as some of you will know, we have a terrier. Um, uh, And many of you will have dogs, I suppose. And uh, uh, when uh, we are far too well-bred, we may get an itchy ear, and we're just going to go, uh, when a dog gets an itchy ear, it's happy to spend two minutes going. And it's more like that kind of dog sense that this language is conveying. 
when you've got something that you're just desperate to get sorted in the ear department, when you just love what chapter 2 and verse 16 calls godless chatter, you're, oh yeah, give me more, give me more, give me more. When your ears just itch to get gossip in, and what Paul has often enough in this letter called the kind of chatter, the, uh, the wittering that can go on instead of solid, healthful teaching. But you, it's not the only time in this letter, Paul has now said, but you, uh, verse 5, but you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, Do the work of an evangelist. Don't be put off. Preach the word. It's for correcting, rebuking, uh, uh, and encouraging. Now, those sound quite churchy things. Those are things you would do with the word in church. But also, do the work of an evangelist. Use the word externally. Uh, It is your duty. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. Now, what I want right now is your sympathy. Because everything seems to me to work against uh, the preacher who is concerned with this passage. Duty. There's a word to turn us all off. Be prepared. If you were in uh, any of those uniformed organizations... Uh, the stuff around being prepared was fun, but being told to be prepared was a bit dull. There is this serious, solemn tone to this passage. But some of you will have been here this morning and listened to, what, nine, ten children preach the word this morning. All they did was stand up and, with great good humor uh, from a script, uh, just tell the story of the birth of Jesus. They preached the word. They announced it to people who may not have heard it. The, uh, none of the kind of add-ons that they may get in other parts of their life, just the simple scriptural gospel. And of course, the children are brilliant at inviting friends in to listen and be part of it all. And it was great fun. It doesn't have to be serious and solemn. But it is the message of the whole letter It comes kind of focused to a point. Preach the word. Let that be your confidence in the face of the nonsense that's going to be going on around you. And so we've got to finish by saying, okay, what does that mean? If we're going to preach the word, what have we got to do with it? And I I want to just finish by making some suggestions. I know this will sound obvious, but I want to say know it. How would you read it in such a way as to know it? Uh, Sometimes people get hung up because they can't remember Proverbs particularly well. Or they may not be too hot on Leviticus. And I want to say, learn the stories. Um, We've got uh, Tony and Carol with us. Uh, Another of our mission partners that I'd recommend you try and uh, fine, he's normally a morning person, I have to say, is John Cooper. John Cooper spends his life going to the marketplace in the North African town where he lives for half the year, and he sits down and he tells stories. And those listening to him 
would have to be quite well versed in the Bible before they realized he's actually telling the Bible stories. But he's simply telling them and made them his own and turning them around and saying, yeah, there was once a man who. He doesn't say, do you know, one of Jesus' followers called Luke told a story once in which Jesus, our Lord, said that there was once a man. He doesn't pack all that in. He just says there was once a man who. He makes it his own. And I think because we have a proper reverence for the authority of Scripture, we're sometimes not very good at learning it, what we might call adaptively. Learning a story in such a way as to say, well, who do I know who's in that situation? How would I tell them that story? Read it, and read it often. Often enough that it gets under your skin. If you're one of those who finds it easy to learn verses, great, learn them. I don't. I tend to learn argument. So I can tell, okay, that sounds like it would be about two-thirds of the way through that letter. That's just the way I think. Sad, but true. You will have a different way. And there's a way in which God has fitted you to read his word. Use that. Read it. Read it often enough that it gets under your skin. Read it in such a way as to learn it. And if it means learning verses, fine. But learn stretches, learn, learn stories, learn where the whole of the story... And don't dismiss the Gospels. Quite often, just like, you know, here we are in 2 Timothy, a letter of Paul. We often focus on those, and that's right, they, they stretch us. But go back to the Gospels and read those amazing stories of what this man does. And the great thing about those stories is they don't tie it up by saying, and you know, children, Jesus did this because... You don't have to do that. Just tell the story. The story will do your work. Read it narratively, in other words. Do your friends at the moment live in grief? What needs do they have? As you read it, think how you would use Scripture. All human life is here, so inhabit it. Trust it. I wonder if you were told of a spiritual superfood, how you would plan to introduce it, to market it. Would there be soaring music? Don't get any of that here. All you get is the clank of chains. Would there be an appeal to the satisfaction of how good it will be? There's none of that here. All it gets you is persecution in this life. Would you talk about the rewards that it will bring to you? Well, that is here but only as a final crown. Until then, it's a matter of duty. Would you portray it with beautiful people? Well, not if you were talking about Paul, who had a squint and was bald and short by every account, uh, or, or with Timothy, who was a, a nervous wreck some of the time. The question I want to ask you is this. If I got run over tomorrow, how many of you could step up because you've prepared? I'm quite serious about that. Don't intend to get run over tomorrow. But how many of you just assume that preaching the word is somehow a technical professional responsibility? How many of you live in 316 but not in 42? And I'm here tonight to tell you that it's not just about this passage, but the whole of this letter has been get to 42. You may be a 316 Christian, but get to 42. It's not for professionals. It's for you doing the work of an evangelist, rebuking, encouraging, correcting. When did you last correct anyone, rebuke them, teach them from the word of God? 
Don't go looking elsewhere for Christian spiritual superfoods. Evangelicals are going through one of their periods where they are bored with the Bible. Don't be. Read it. Learn it. Preach it. Let's pray. And as, as ever, um, just spend a moment in silence. Some of you are going through a reaction that says, uh, yeah, he says that because he's supposed to say that, but if he knew what my life was like, he would know why my life is difficult with the Bible. Just take that to God in the silence. Lord, we confess before you that we are, some of us, and some of the time all of us, are bored with the Bible. We don't really believe uh, its usefulness, although we sort of remember that it's supposed to be really important. We recognize before you that many of us will never have used the Bible in interactions with others the way that Paul talks about here, correcting, rebuking, teaching, training, encouraging, evangelizing. And Lord, where we play our part in uh, making us a 316 church so that we honor the word, We recognize it. We are glad because of it. We rejoice in it, all of which are true. Where we've played our part in making us content with that, please disturb us once again and make us uncomfortable until we are also a chapter 4 and verse 2 church so that Jesus Christ would be glorified and so that more Gentiles in our own generation uh, would hear uh, from us and that we may know a crown of righteousness is stored up for us because we have done what we should with this immense treasure that you've placed in our hands, in the hands of the Muyang people now as well, and in the hands of others. We give you thanks for what you've done for them. But when we look at what it's cost to bring them just the New Testament, please let us not be heedless or careless with this immense treasure that we can take for granted. Amen.